You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We spent about the last four years talking about the deep divisions in the United States and how these threaten the greatest experiment in democracy. We've discussed the elimination of civics education in schools. Could that be the problem? Or our social media silos, could that be the problem? We've certainly talked about the impact of offshoring of manufacturing, what that's done to the once proud communities in the Midwest and the South, and how the lack of a common language or lingua franca, if you're a lawyer, has left us all with a completely different set of realities. We seem to have hit the nadir on January 6th of 2021, but the bottom appears to have dropped even lower the day Vladimir Putin assessed America, the world's strongest military power, was no threat to his desire to invade Ukraine. And that divided and diminished, we couldn't even rally our allies to form a block against his aggression. We blamed the divided press. But how did the press go from lofty fourth estate and steward of the truth to clickbait and sound bites in what seemed like a matter of seconds? Or was there never really a golden era of journalism except in our collective American imagination? I'm joined today by Chris Steyerwalt, author of Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. Chris is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a journalist, a political editor for News Nation and a contributing editor to The Dispatch, which he's free to shamelessly plug on this podcast, should he choose. Uh, Previously, he worked for the Fox News Channel from 2010 until he was famously terminated in 2020 after he correctly called the state of Arizona for President Biden. Now, Chris recently testified about the latter experience before the January 6th committee, and we're going to hyperlink his testimony here in the notes. Chris, what a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me and for that very generous introduction. <laughs> so let's break this down. I mean, this is something that I, I don't sit in your position. I'm, I'm a humble national security lawyer, but you work for Fox for a really long time. And you were even co-hosting a show with Dana Perino, who was President George W. Bush's former press secretary. Now, we know that President Trump was communicating directly with Fox News's on-air personalities. And so, well, that was your home for a mm-hmm. decade. What made you desire to write this book right now? And I know a lot of people are going to just ridiculously assume sour grapes. This is much deeper. This book is, frankly, it's one of the best public services I've seen in a oh, long time. It's very kind. My grapes are not sour. The grapes are sweet. I am grateful for all the time I worked at Fox and Fox doesn't owe me a job. And this isn't a book about Fox. This is a book about us as a vocation, journalists as a vocation, but about us as citizens and you know what we owe. I guess I'll put it this way. I want to break down how we got here, how the industry got here. But I think as a premise, as a framing concept, there is no American journalism without Americanism. And the work that we do as journalists has to acknowledge the gift that we are given in our freedoms. When you take shortcuts, and it doesn't take any special expertise to know that salacious, cheap, partisan, mean-spirited, fear-mongering kind of journalism is a lot easier and a lot quicker, more effective, that junk food is tastier than green beans. And we know that. But we also know that when we do that, when we do it knowingly, we are undertaking an activity that harms the Republic and is unworthy of the gifts that we've been given. So I want to call American journalists to Americanism, right? To honor the First Amendment and the principles. And also, if I may, to not be too mawkish, but a million men and women died to preserve and protect that constitution and these freedoms. When we cheap shot and shortcut and, uh, palpate the the limbic system and fear of news consumers, then we are dishonoring their memory and we are not being worthy of their sacrifices. So that's one part. And this is definitely a book that is written to my fellow journalists because I love my vocation. I love journalism, but it's also written for news consumers. We owe something too, just as consumers of news. If you want to have a bad diet, right? Let's say you want to eat delicious Taco Bell cheesy gordita crunches every day. If you want to do that all the time, that's your choice, right? You do what you want to do. 
But if you are not being thoughtful and purposeful in the information that you consume, you're being a bad citizen. And I don't mean to be judgy, but you are letting the rest of us down and you are letting down the memory of those fallen and you are letting down the the ambitions and hopes of our founding when you take the easy way out. I don't mean it to be a Jeremiah. What I do mean it to be is a call to action. And I think it is. I think you were successful in that regard. Um, and I welcome mawkishness anytime on this <laughs> podcast. Um, feel free to go there. <laughs> no one's going to stop you. Certainly not me. But, you know, there's some practical things that you raise in the book that were pretty, I think, are really important for people to understand, because I think there's a tendency right now, there certainly is a popular narrative that media barons of, you know, various, whatever their Velshen shown might be, have driven us into separate camps according to whether or not we fit the category of liberal or conservative. And what happened in this book is you really dismantle that simplistic version of the history of the press, and you do it rather brilliantly. But what I liked as a lawyer that's always looking for facts is you talked about things like monetization of information, sort of what happened to print media. I did think as I was reading this about the realities of the loss of American manufacturing and the loss Mm -hmm. of esteem that I see across the country, particularly when I leave our beautiful city, city where I was born, and I travel up to the Northwest in particular, I'll tell you, my heart sunk the most when I went to Toledo, Ohio once, and I saw what had happened to their downtown. And I did the same thing when I went to Kings Mountain, North Carolina, which is where my mother's family settled. And I realized that it was no longer producing the best fabric in the world and hadn't at this point for 60 years. So can you break some of that practicality down, those simple facts? I mean, this really is why I commend your book to literally everyone. I'm no real historian. I'm a popcorn historian at best. But here's what we know. The American media landscape was built on local newspapers, right? The world of American news and information that came out of, and you could talk about the press lords at the turn of the previous end, we could go back and we could talk about, remember the main, we could talk about yellow journalism, we could talk about all that stuff. But by the 20th century, by certainly by the end of the Second World War in the United States, there was a newspaper industry. And by the way, One of my favorites in this is I love Ben. I really came to return to a great love of Ben Franklin as a KG newspaper man, right? As a KG operator. And he had passed on by that point by a couple of years. But the very first serious piece of legislation by the first Congress of the United States was a sweetheart deal for the newspaper business. So you got to like that. That's how important it was. And of course, everybody wanted favor. By the time you get to the end of the Second World War, Across the United States is a web connected by the Associated Press, too, and the UPI and others. But you have this web of local newspapers that is the main information thoroughfare for the country. And guess what? There's national news, but not that much because there just isn't that much national news. There isn't that much news in the United States that applies to everybody in the country, right? There's lots of news if you live in Valdosta, Georgia, or if you live in Kings Mountain, North Carolina, or you Toledo, Ohio, there's lots of news that connects your part of the state or your county or all of that stuff that you might be interested in, but not really, they're just not that much information that is necessary at the same level across the whole United States. So the newspaper industry gets incredibly fat and incredibly sassy and clocking in at these shocking profits, right? 30% profits, but 23%, 22% profits are very normal. So what happens over time, of course, is that the newspaper industry gets very, very over leveraged. And because of this very predictable profit, it's easy to borrow money to do consolidations, to do economies of scale. So you have these massive newspaper organizations that come up with clusters and we're gonna save another five cents doing this and we're gonna do that but they're heavily, heavily leveraged. In 1997, let's say, 1998, and when I was starting out my journalism career in newspaper in Charleston, West Virginia, the internet was the size of a, you know, a fly speck. This little nubbin of a thing said, you know, we're going to eat you. And the newspaper said, oh, we are very rich. We are very powerful. We are very influential. Politicians court our favor. We have the license to print money. We have all this stuff. And do you know what really killed newspapers? A lot of people said it was social media. 
It was Craigslist. The beginning of the end. For the, yep. The beginning of the end for the, you can plot, you can chart that when Craigslist arrived in a community, what happened to newspapers? Because classified ads were a huge component of why newspapers not only so the newspapers made money on the ads, but people had to buy the newspaper in order to get the ads, right? That was another thing that you needed because you needed to see the legal notices. You need to see the ads. You can't really be a resident of Toledo if you're not subscribed to the Blade, right? That's the thing. You got to have it. So Craigslist started to change that. And the newspaper industry reached its peak profitability from advertising revenue in 2005. It was a, a shocking amount of money and it had doubled pretty reliably or almost doubled pretty reliably since the end of the second world war. Ka-chunk, 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 this predictable profit increase. And then it lost 90% or so of its profits in the course of the next five years. The newspaper industry made a terrible, terrible decision as a result of a collective action problem unable to work together because they had been so cosseted and protected, special carve-outs and antitrust law, all of the patootie kissing from all of the politicians to take care of the newspaper business. They were not prepared for what happened. So what did they do? They slashed. They slashed content. They didn't fight to make their content special. They didn't paywall it. What they did instead was cut newsrooms and fire journalists. That kind of corporate dummy thinking consultant driven, right? You got a guy who says, we're bleeding money. What do we want to do? You don't want to go to your over leveraged owner and say, here's the plan. We're going to go long on content. We're going to invest deeply in local news and we're going to have to weather this storm, which is what they should have done, but they didn't. And as a result, the loss of newspaper newsroom jobs across the country was shocking, right? The hollowing out of the newspaper industry. Now that has trickle-down effects. In the book, I talk about how it actually increases when you lose a newspaper in a town. There's a very persuasive study that says that it actually increases the cost of lending for communities because you have less management, right? The ring of gaijis. If these people are not being watched, what are they going to try to do? What's the county commission going to do? They're going to try to help their friends. Sometimes that's out-and-out corruption. Sometimes it's just sloppy, but the cost of borrowing money. So there's even a real economic cost attached to losing these newsrooms, but certainly for good government, there's a lot of cost. But what else is there? A loss of community, a loss. Of, and you can tell in communities that have good local newspapers, I, I break down Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas City, Missouri has a robust local newspaper that has hung on and is doing all this local journalism and it has a vibrant news ecosystem. And it has helped save and remake Kansas City into a viable place to live. If you live in a community without a good local news presence, it's much harder to define who we are and what we are. So this hollowing out happens on one level. On the other side is cable news has arrived, right? Fox News arrives in 1996. Fox News, MSNBC, CNN are looking for a way, you know, you're probably not old enough to remember this, but there was a time when the idea of 24-hour news was considered, it was preposterous that it could make money. Who would watch the news 24 hours a day? That's crazy. And we remember what CNN's ratings used to be like. They would go up when there was a big news event and people were tuned in for the Gulf War or for what, whatever. And then after the it's big the news- The slow was, chase. The slow yeah, chase. Al Cowling, shout out. And then after the big news event is over, their ratings would go back down. And that's how it was. And that was normal. What these companies figured out was that by monetizing the political anger of addicted partisans, that they could have persistent, consistent profitability, that there was a path to success. It's very funny for me to say, but I'm not supposed to be a staple food in your media diet. I'm a political analyst, right? I'm like the weatherman. You bring me in right about now, right? We're 75 days from a midterm election. Now is the time you bring in this dancing bear and I do my little trick and talk about which races and what stuff. And that's fine. I love horse race politics. I think it's great. And political demography and all of that stuff. What happened over time, though, was with, without enough to connect people to the story, without enough to connect people on a national basis, what is the one thing that all Americans have in common? Their federal government. And if you can't come up with enough stories to do that, then you're going to make everything about national politics. And then the worst part, what works better than arguments about policy? 
What is more creates more emotional connection? What would unite people, bond people, and attach them to their news sources? And this isn't just cable news. This is for the Washington Post. This is for the New York Times. It's for all this stuff. What would connect you the most would be cultural issues. I started to say a common enemy, but you're you're persuasive to me. Well, sure. It's great if you can have a common enemy, right? That's wonderful if you can say that guy, Saddam Hussein, he's the pits. But if you can find a common enemy for half of the country and say that the other half of the country is coming to get you, think about two stories. Drag Queen Story Hour, which happened in, I forget, Oregon or Washington, and don't that say sounds for, apocryphal, Chris. <laughs> no, this is the thing. No, this is, thing? is a huge okay. controversy. It was a huge culture war news controversy. So drag queen story hour in public libraries in the Pacific Northwest. And then Ron DeSantis's sex ed, the don't say gay bill. And so here are these two things that are happening. And if you are a conservative person in Florida, whether or not a drag queen reads Goodnight Moon at a public library has no effect on your life. It doesn't touch you. It doesn't come near you. It's not a problem. There's tons of stuff that people do in the Pacific Northwest that people in in Florida don't do. Conversely, if unless you have a grandchild in a Florida public school, what kind of rules that Florida has for its state stuff doesn't matter to you if you live in Washington state. Go to Drag Queen Story Hour if you want to, or don't. Who cares? It doesn't matter. What the national media tends to do, though, is drag these culture war stories into the center pit and say, be afraid and be angry because people, somebody somewhere is doing something you don't like. And that's not a healthy way for a country to function. But it does energize people. And I have mm. to say, when I look around at particularly my relatives who are retired, who frankly are lonely, they've got a lot of time on their hands. I mean, this, this is something that I, I wouldn't say it's a testosterone shot, but it does energize them. And it's, it's alarming to look at. And the other thing is, first of all, let me say this, gay, 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 one. And two, <laughs> it would depend on, I would not consider my child to be groomed if the drag queen was entertaining enough. It really depends, right? right. I mean, it has to be a good drag. Nobody wants to deal with one that's lame. Nobody wants bad drag. That's right. Exactly. No, no, I have to say. Okay. So having said gay, what I would say is this, I, I don't see an end to this. I do feel that we have a loss of esteem. So, and I've mm-hmm. talked about, I do feel that there is a low grade almost depression that has set in across the United States. I I think some of that is the age of the people who are most susceptible to this based on all the studies. More rural, older, are more likely to get all hinked up. I do think that there's something, there's some loss of sort of common identity that has contributed to that loneliness and isolation. And then COVID hit. And I feel whatever we had on our hands before that, which was a general lack of valuation of people who had sort of aged out of their employment Mm -hmm. or who had lost their esteem because of a loss of manufacturing, you add to it the culture wars that are suddenly, you know, being kicked around. I do think on some level it energized people and it gave them a sense of sickeningly community. Yeah, that's the problem. Human beings are meant to live in community with one another, right? We are a social species and whatever term you want to use, our coalitional instinct is what has made us the most successful species on the planet, right? Is that we have the ability, you put 10 of us together, we can talk our ability to use language, to communicate, to engage in common purpose. Dolphins, very smart, have not built a hospital. There are no dolphin hospitals. Our ability to share complex ideas and to share a vision for something that we're going to do together in the long term. That is what really makes it the miracle possible. People crave it. They need it. They need to be part of something. So what have we done in the United States in the past 50 years? We have dislocated people from meaningful connections. The nuclear family concept turned out to be a disaster. It's good for people to be in contact with their cousins and their grandparents and to live in areas and places where they have a support network and they're connected to each other. And if you can't do that, you got to have live in a a neighborhood where you're deeply connected to the people around you. And that the way that you're going to achieve those deep connections, is going to be through religious observance, public service, those kinds of healthful eleemosynary things are going to be what add value and meaning to your life. Those are the coalitions, right? Your church, mosque, synagogue, the Boy Scouts, the whatever. That is another layer of enrichment in your life that gives you purpose. And your work is going to give you purpose because you're going to work as part of a team. Well, what if you work remotely 
and you don't work as part of a team? What if you're part of a gig economy and you don't have coworkers that you, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to have wonderful coworkers over the years and it's deeply enriched my life. What if that's not part of your story? What if you don't go to a church, mosque or synagogue? What if you don't volunteer? What if you don't even know your neighbors? So here you are adrift, atomized, not connected to the life-giving, affirming connections that make humanity possible. There's a cheap and easy replacement. And Blaise Pascal talked about the God-shaped void in people's heart, but whether you're a theistic person or not a theistic person, there is that craving, there is that empty space in all of us. And unfortunately, people in the news business found out, as like a lot of people did, that partisanship could provide the impression of belonging. Think about how much the ideology of these parties has changed over the past 20 years. Look at particularly the shift among Republicans. This is a reflection of team membership matters more than the ideological purpose, that belonging to and being part of the good guys and not the bad guys is the way. I spent a lot of time thinking about David Hume when I was writing this book. And reason is the servant of the passions and will ever be thus. And it doesn't change, right? Jonathan Haidt's work on this is very persuasive to me as well. You know why people flip-flop in politics and, and betray their previous positions? Because there's a real cost to being outside of your group. Look at Republicans dealing with Trump. The cost of saying what everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody behind closed doors said, what, what do all Republicans say behind closed doors? We got to get rid of Trump. This guy's nuts. This is bad for the party. He's not helping. He's hurting us in midterms, da, 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 da. But if you say publicly anything that's like that, you will be ostracized and you will be deprived of the community that you have built. So I lost not a great deal, but my relationship with my father, who was my best friend in the world, my closest advisor, the person on whom I relied the most. By the time he was 81, he bought a second television so he could have Fox Business on at the same time as Fox News. And I was very often appearing on those screens. He was so angry at Barack Obama and so upset about Barack Obama in 2012 that here I am covering a national election. I've got a front row seat. I'm doing all of this stuff. I'm meeting all these people. But I can't really talk about it with him because he is sitting and soaking, being sort of irradiated by anger all day. That's not good for anybody, but it's especially not good if you don't have, as you said before, if you're already dislocated a little bit, if you're older, if you're out of the workforce, that's tough. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to point out, I'm listening to you very intently. I have to say that was one of the more touching parts of your book too, was your reference to your father. I will tell you, I lost my own father who was a career CIA scientist very recently. And I must say shortly before he died, and he was a lifelong Republican who was appalled frankly, by yeah. President Trump, to be perfectly candid. You know, he really did not have a lot of energy and he had a hard time even sitting up in bed. But there was a point in time where the My Pillow guy oh, suddenly boy. appeared on the screen, which, by the way, there was no volume. He was literally looking at pictures and he managed to hoist himself up and raise his finger and say, that idiot, <laughs> before he collapsed uh, back on the bed. Yeah. So those, I feel like you, you sound on I mean, a couple of things I want to point out is um, you, you basically have just said that man actualizes himself through his work to a degree, which by the way, is a quote from Karl Marx. So I'm going to accuse you of that. Um, secondarily, <laughs> um, I have to say that I, I, I do believe we need our tribe. I was also persuaded though, probably not quite as much as I was when I read your book, but I enjoyed Sebastian Younger's you know, book on the thought of tribes. And I do think a lot of people are being radicalized, as we would call it, in the national security space. Yeah. And we do see this with people who you know, get involved in terrorist groups. There is a hole in their hearts. There's something that they're missing. Oftentimes, there are other issues. But I do think it's acutely sad that uh, we're Flynn. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let us pause for a moment of silence here, because, yes, I don't I really don't know what happens to people. And the worst part is, I think at some point at the end of their lives, they'll reflect on this and they may be horrified, but they're not quite there yet. Many of them. If you accept is the premise here, here's. At, for me, the root of this problem, both parties tell me America is dangling by a thread and it's almost over, that the great American experiment is almost over. And then I drive around the country or I go places. And yeah, obviously I'm from central Appalachia 
it's not all sunshine and unicorns. There's problems and opioid addiction and dislocation of communities and all that stuff. But how is America doing now as compared to all of human history? And the answer is, this is still the best time and the best place to be alive in the history of the world. I agree as a woman. It's this is a, yeah, this the yeah. 102nd anniversary of the ratification of the 19th exactly. Amendment. Certainly better than I would be doing in the Middle East, to be frank. People, people are freer. More opportunity is available to more kinds of people. We have banished the diseases, many of the diseases that plagued humankind. Again, we have a lot of problems, but this is a good time to be alive. I listen to both parties and they tell me that it's almost over, right? The fear mongering and the paranoia that you hear from these parties that is echoed repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly by the siloed partisan networks would make a person, as I tell people, the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th to break the windows and poop in Nancy Pelosi's wastebasket, those people were acting on information that told them this was a correct and patriotic thing to do. The scariest part of it isn't, and I'm sure there were, you know, Proud Boys or whatever who did, who, who were knowingly, but I think most of those people believe that what they were doing was right. That's scarier because what has developed in the place of our previous media landscape is I call it climate controlled information. You can wake up in the morning and go to bed at night and all through the day, if you want, you never have to hear anything that makes you unhappy, never have to hear anything that disagrees with your worldview or challenges any of your assumptions. You can start out in the morning, you can be told that you are good and they're bad, your beliefs are virtuous and theirs are evil, you love the country, they hate the country. And if you persist in this and you lack, I guess what I would call informational grit, the ability to hear things that you don't critical like. Critical thinking. Yeah, critical thinking. But just also just the toughness to say like, oh, I didn't like that. But instead of saying, I, uh, I recoil from it and I have to retreat to the cool water of the, my partisan affiliation of an outlet that matches my feelings. If you can't do that, then what will eventually happen? You know, you can put a Republican, how scary is this? Never in American electoral history, has it been easier to vote? And never in American electoral history has the election process been more secure, right? We've got more ballot security than ever, and we've got more ballot access than ever. And yet, everywhere I go, I'm told that it's over. Republicans tell me that voter fraud is rampant in every corner of the country, and this is a, we should panic and take you know aggressive action on these things. And then Democrats tell me that people are being disenfranchised right and left. I say we had more voter turnout in 2020 than we have ever, right? We had the highest quadrennial presidential election turnout in 2020 than we have had in any year, really, 66.8%. This is wild. Our midterm turnout in 2018 was the highest ever. This disconnection from reality is rooted, I think, in a demand side problem. Viewers and news consumers do not accept the possibility that they might have to hear some things that they don't like. And because they have so many choices about what else to do, that represents a threat to these outlets. The New York Times went through a whole thing about whether or not people like Tom Cotton, Senator from Arkansas, should be allowed to be published in the pages of the New York Times editorial page. He had made a deal with New York Times, have an essay that he wanted to, I think it was against the Iran nuclear deal. I don't remember what the topic was, but it was a in the news kind of topic. This sparked such outrage inside the newsroom. Cannot happen. You cannot put that voice in there. And this is reflective of the kind of safetyism and moral panic that afflicts both sides, that if they hear something they disagree with, that their heads will explode or they'll just evaporate. Yeah. And I mean, you've sort of experienced that most incredibly, I think, at Fox News when you called the Arizona election. And by the way, here, here to you, um, I appreciate your integrity and bravery, but that basically terminated your career because you were delivering information people didn't want to hear. Well, the good news for me, it didn't terminate my career. I was part I stand of a, corrected. I was, <laughs> you improved I was, your career. I was very privileged for more than a decade to be part of the best decision desk in news and totally awesome and a fun, interesting, hilarious, 
patriotic group of Republicans and Democrats, academics and political professionals, and me. We were the best. And it was really great. If you think about it this way, if we had called Pennsylvania for Trump, as we did in 2016, how did Republicans feel about that? Hooray! You did it. You did it. You made this thing happen for us. But when we called Arizona for Biden in 2020, we said, boo, uh, how could you do this to us? The imbecility of the thought that somehow what a, me and a bunch of nerds do in a room with some computers and some raw vote totals has any effect on what happens. Or the fact, by the way, whether you count the absentee votes first or whether you count the in-person votes first, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. It's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. Doesn't matter which pieces you start with, the image will be the same at the end. But Republicans had been so primed with all of this stolen election talk from the president and amplified by some of the hosts on Fox, but across the right-wing media. They were so primed for this that basically they were looking for the causus belli, right? They were looking for the first proof that the election was going to be stolen from them. And there I was sitting on television and saying how proud I was that we had called Arizona for Biden because we beat the competition because that's our job. That's what we want to do. The disconnect there, you know, that's how I ended up writing the book. The, my understanding of this, like, just absolutely soul-crushing rage that people had, the anger that they had toward me, including, like, members of Congress and stuff, was alarming to me, not because I was alarmed. I went through plenty of death threats and all that stuff in 2016. That was already par for the course. But what alarmed me was the degree to which the semiotics of partisanship and the derivation of meaning from the news business was really screwing things up. And I remember when I worked at Fox, sometimes people would stop me in an airport or wherever, and they would say, hey, yeah, 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 we love you. We see you on Fox. We're big Fox supporters. And I wanted to say, like, well, you know, this is a multinational corporation that makes its money by you paying attention to it, right? That's what it, it doesn't need your support. Owned by an Australian you added in the book. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't need your support. It needs your patronage, right? Which are two different things. It's not a movement. It's a media company. Not that many people watch cable news, right? On any given night, you're talking about across all of cable news, fewer than 10 million people, seven, 8 million people across all of cable news. Fox would have a third or more of those viewers. It's not that many people, but then again, not that many people vote in primaries. When you listen to the people in these Republican primaries across the country, it's crazy talk, right? And you don't know whether it's performative crazy talk or whether they really believe it. And probably with a lot of these folks, some days they're the dupe and some days they're the cynic and it goes back and forth. But that stuff is crazy. And I feel much the same way when I listen to Stacey Abrams and other people tell me that I'm, my democracy is gone and that all of this stuff is going to happen. And as it turns out, activating people's cortisol levels and keeping them afraid and keeping them angry is a really good way to keep them buying my pillows. It's a really good way to keep them right there. Roger Ailes was so good at figuring out how to do cable news. Fox didn't really become Fox News until after 9-11. That's when Roger Ailes and his team really figured out how to do it. What did Fox's competitors do? They emulated Fox, right? They didn't say like, oh, well, we're going to try our own thing. They said, we got to try to do this. I am so encouraged right now to see CNN trying to return to itself, right? Chris Lick, their new president, is like, we got we to gotta clean up our act. We got to get back to aspirationally fair news. And that's the same thing I wish for Fox. Fox, once upon a time, had a robust, good news division uh, that I was very proud to be a part of. My boss, Bill Salmon, Chris Wallace, Brett Baer, really like conscientious, focused journalists. And we were really left alone to do the work that we wanted to do. And that's what I want for Fox again. Well, I, you know, I'd like to believe that every media outlet could embrace that. I would also like to say, though, that I've been listening very carefully and I read the book very carefully. And one of the things that I think you've mentioned here, it, it, it gets back to the monetization. And I think therein lies the challenge when you talk about the diminution of 
print media and the consolidation under these large corporations, I think we're battling our largely successful capitalist model, which requires corporations to show shareholder value, return on investment. And if they can't do that by reporting the truth diligently and plodding along, you know, what's a corporation to do? We're riding up against some sort of foundational structural things that until we press out the message beginning in maybe elementary school with civics education Amen. and critical thinking, I don't know how we turn this, not just ship, but, you know, juggernaut around one and two, the mantra has always been lower taxes. And, I, you know, I grew up in Europe, to be honest with you, and I have seen some of the disaster that can come from overtaxation, but I've also seen some of the benefits and one of the things that really concerned me was when you look at California, for example, and the, you look at the history of, for example, real property taxes, mm-hmm. and there was a referendum out there. And the minute it was passed, lowering property taxes, with all good reason, you know, retired people wanted to be able to stay in their homes. You know, there were some policy reasons behind this movement that get lost in the later recollections of it. But as soon as it passed, that was how schools were funded. And the bottom dropped out of public education in California, and you did begin to see a loss of electives. And one of the things I really like, I I think people interested in journalism should pay special attention to the advice you meet out at the end of the book, which was terrific. What happens is now you've got sort of less thinking going on, frankly, beginning at a young age. And I do believe this stuff starts when you're a kid. And I do believe the ultimate outcome here is we end up a sectarian society which if you've traveled at all in Africa or the Middle East is not at all what you want to be. And it makes you vulnerable to our biggest enemies. And it is a national security threat with China rising and Russia doing God knows what's going on um, in Putin's head. But one of the things that I hear a lot from the right is, you know, less taxes. The problem that I see right now is in these states where the taxes are lower, you see lower literacy rates, lower standardized test scores and lower college attendance. I don't like paying taxes. You know, we live in D.C. It crushes us. I mean, I do see some structural things here that feed into what the news business has now suffered. And I wonder, I I mean, you seem to me to be, you know, call yourself a popcorn historian. I'm going to toss you a little more respect than that. (laughs) You strike me as a big thinker. I mean, I don't know. Do you feel like you can respond to that? I mean, where, how do we fix, how do we write this? So literacy rates in the United States are appallingly bad. And the written word is the only way to transmit big ideas over long distances and time. You can say what freedom is, but you can't take a picture of freedom. You can show a picture of a person enjoying being free, but you can't. You can't yeah, tweet. You get, right. You can't. You can't. There's no meme for freedom. You have to write it. What these truths are that we hold to be self-evident must be described, must be written. And then we can decode these messages, as I say in the book, the writings of the Apostle Paul or the founders or Shakespeare are time travel, right? These are messages to us from over hundreds or thousands of years that come to us and we can use language to decode that message and have that idea or that image popped right into our head. Only reading can do that. And our literacy rates are horrifying. Terrible, terrible. I forget what the number is, but it's something like more than half of Americans between the ages of 16 and 70 can't read above a sixth grade level. I don't know about you. I have a sixth grader. He is exceptional and is a great reader and all of that stuff. But I don't know that I would let he and his classmates come up with the plan for how to restore the Republic. The problems that we have in our schools are a crisis of a bipartisan result. And there's plenty of blame to go around for how we did it and what part teachers unions play and what part low taxes play. And there's lots, but we know it's not working and would be a cop out for me to say, well, the answer to all this is better education. This is like, well, you know, the way to deal with the Middle East, we got to get the Sunnis and the Shias to agree. Oh, okay, cool. Once we do that, then it'll be fine. So I don't want, I don't want to cop out that way, but we have to understand pain is the touchstone of all spiritual growth. You do not get better until it hurts too much to stay where you are. Men have three sets of suits. You got the suits that you buy when you're skinny for like a week, and then you buy eight suits, and then you never wear them. Then you have the suits that you wear most of the time. Then you have like three fat suits. 
And the diet begins on the day that you go to put the fat suit on and the button is straining and you're like, oh, I'm there. I've reached the end of the rack. And the story of America over time is a story of a country coming together and falling apart and then falling apart and coming together and over and over the sine wave. You know, I often point people to the stretch between November 1963 and April of 1975. A calamity after calamity after calamity, assassinate the president, assassinate his brother, assassinate the world historic leading civil rights figure, assassinate the second world historic leading uh, civil rights figure, try to kill George Wallace. George Wallace wins electoral votes running as an out and out bigot. We have riots and not just the smashed in windows at a Ferragamo riots, burning down whole sections of city, Washington, D.C. The strip in between us up 14th Street burned. Everything on 14th Street, Washington, D.C. is new since 1967. We went through a vice president resigning in disgrace, a president resigning in disgrace. The federal government perniciously lied to the American people about the Vietnam War and kept it from the somewhere in a meeting in this very city, um, on multiple occasions, somebody said, should we do the right thing about Vietnam? And somebody else said, well, midterms are coming up. So maybe, maybe after midterms. That's true. We know that now, right? Yeah. Don't sign the treaty until you get elected. We read the Pentagon Papers. We know what was going on. So all of that happened in a shorter span of time than it has been since September 11th. That was 12 years. What happened was we got sick of it. We were exhausted by it. And in 1976, with the election of Jimmy Carter, uh, outsider, wholesome, and with the bicentennial, and then Reagan's message, the United States between 1976, and you can pick whatever time you want, let's say, whether it's the Clinton impeachment or the Iraq war, for two decades, we defeated Soviet communism, we invented the internet, we got crazy rich, the world got crazy rich, we revolutionized the world again. Over the next period, Republicans and Democrats reached a consensus to do all of this amazing stuff. And then it broke down again. I believe that we are in the later stages of a long breakdown that we've been going on that involves intergenerational conflict, baby boomers in struggle with millennials, all kinds of stuff. We have been through now these harrowing experiences. And the West Virginia-ism that is applicable here is that the best way to get good at something fast is to play for more than you can afford to lose. The events of the pandemic, the January 6th attack, say this can go away, right? This can be lost. We're acting like people who are unworthy of our heritage and of the sacrifices of the people who came before us. And either we will, I'll shut up after I say this. I have had too much opportunity to quote Abraham Lincoln's Young Men's Lyceum speech but it remains just as true today as it was 20 years before the Civil War, that we will either endure for all time as a nation of free men or we will die by suicide. People want me to be able to tell them that option two is off the table. It most certainly is not. Most certainly is within our power. As, as I, when people in Congress say failure is an option, failure isn't an option, I say, oh, that's where you're wrong. You'd be mistaken how often Congress really can fail at important stuff. So, I I hope that the experiences that we've had are bracing, and I hope that when people turn on the television or open up their phone and they see news that is feels too good, right? It feels too good. It scratches that little itch that they have about contempt for their fellow Americans, and they know it's a cheap shot, but they do it anyway. When you do that, you're hurting the country. And it's not good because it's, and in the book, I talk about all the psychological effects that go on about fundamental attribution error and the other components. So you owe it to the Republic. You owe it to out of love to be better about this stuff. And I think, I think we we can do that. I hope you're right. I hope that, you know, we don't become another example of the trope that all empires fail. Well, Um, I sincerely hope so. (laughs) the 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 secret is, as I can crib Gordon Wood here and say the secret is to be an empire of liberty. I hope you're right. I hope Amen. you're right. Um, Me too. <laughs> you're here. And uh, I, I do I, I do want to just go back uh, for just a minute. I don't want to take us back too far. But even today, as we're talking about sort of the writing of the correcting 
of CNN and MSNBC. I mean, it, you know, the average person, regardless of whether they're left or right, knows that you work in a presidential administration like Dana Perino or Jen Psaki. And then, you know, you do it for as long as you can stand it without completely alienating your children. And then you leave and you get a job with a network of your worldview. Mm-hmm. And quite obviously that has happened. So I don't want to launch into you telling me how we stop that because we can talk about that in a second as well. But one of the things that you talk about, I think we now call it access journalism, but you refer to it, I believe, as cronyism that has kind yeah. of infected journalism. I think one of the key components to getting Americans to think critically is to sort of thinking about this cronyism. You give an example in the book, which is you know the relationship between Ben Bradley, who was a Harvard man, and JFK. And yep. you know, there's at least a book by one local author that says they were so close that Bradley removed artifacts from Mary Meyer's house after she was killed on the uh, towpath. Um, And, you know, rumor afoot, I guess, in that time was that Mary Meyer's, Cord Meyer's former wife was in a relationship with JFK, which may or may, you know, that may or may not have been true. It seems like what that does is that tees up a conversation, you know, left and right, because we've already talked about Fox's Mm -hmm. sort of utter failings in this regard. But how do we take what we're seeing with this when all of these people, I mean, I feel like I'm in, you know, I'm watching a lot of these people who are linked through an Ivy League background or some sort of political background, and it becomes this feedback loop that they then spit out to the American public through their media outlets. I mean, is there a way to fix just that if these are the people in control? Well, I, I would I would be careful about how much control they have. George Stephanopoulos doesn't have that much control over anything, right? And neither does Jen Psaki and neither does Dana Perino, right? Those kinds of jobs or jobs for the children uh, or relatives of politicians to go into the media, this is a very common back scratchy stuff, right? It's a lot easier to get a gig as a broadcaster uh, if your dad is a U.S. senator than it is if your dad is a garbage man. But it's a lot easier to get of course, in D.C., the garbage men do OK, but they do is, really well and they pick up twice a week, which and they it's don't awesome in service. Commonwealth it's, of Virginia. Right. But I guess George Stephanopoulos is aspirationally fair. He is failing to be fair sometimes, but aspirationally, he is trying to present when he does his Sunday show. He is trying to say that I don't favor either side. Now, I may say oh, now really, you work for the Clintons. You were part of the Team Clinton. You were all of that stuff. Give me a break. You're a Democrat, bro, and you're favoring the Democrats in this. What matters is that he wants to be aspirationally fair. And hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. We are not going to root out children of privilege and people of uh, privilege from the elite spaces in America. But what we can do is hold them to account when they do fail and not reward people who are doing it the wrong way. If you take a position like that because of the access that you've had, and now you get to have this nice life and do all that stuff, if you abuse that privilege, we as consumers have to reject that and not tolerate it. You know, I'll sum it up like this. In the American media today, we do not get enough friendly, tough questions. Right. So what we have are unfriendly, angry questions for the other side that have no effect on accountability of the other side. Right. If Tucker Carlson thunders and thunders and thunders about what's wrong with the Democratic Party, no one in the Democratic Party says, geez, guys, have you thought about what Tucker Carlson has said about our party that now that now that he says it, it really is. It's 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 illuminated it for me. Let's change our opinion. Similarly, if Rachel Maddow goes on television and thunders about what's wrong with the Republican Party, it has no effect. These things, it's like shouting into the void because the other side is not hearing. It's more important that George Stephanopoulos asks tough questions of Democrats than it is that he asks tough questions of Republicans because he's coming from their side. He's coming, he started out in their space. Those kinds of tough questions have more value than just somebody at the other side who is just whipping eggs at your face and saying that you're a terrible person. One of the reasons I loved working with Chris Wallace Best questioner in the biz because he was always respectful, but he was always tough. Tim Russert was like that too. It's a thing that can be done, but it requires duty and it requires commitment and it requires understanding that you have obligations beyond the next 15 minute rating increment. 
Chris, I don't know what to say. This has been really incredible. I, I do want to say a couple of things that I think are very important to this conversation. The first is excellent use of the term bilious, thrilled <laughs> by the use of the term political thespians. Uh, I do quarrel with your reference to Bud Schulberg's A Face in the Crowd, because what I really longed for was a reference to his better book, which, of course, is What Makes Sammy Run. And I'm really glad that you came in. I feel like this has actually been, I know you think it's a conversation about journalism. I think at base, this is a conversation about the Republic. I think this is a conversation about our national security. And that is why I wanted you to come on and talk to me today. And I'm super grateful that you did. Well, I really enjoyed our talk for such weighty subject matter. You made it great fun. So thank you so much. I'm thrilled. All right. I look forward to the next book, which will provide the solutions and it'll be digestible by everybody between the age of six and 30. It'll be disseminated widely through the United (laughs) States and form a roadmap for the educational system that will lead us out of this pit that we seem to be in. Or a barbecue book. Either way, we'll see what happens. I could be into that. Would it be (laughs) vegan? I have some really, really good (laughs) vegan recipes to share with you. I think you could actually enjoy them. I've persuaded others. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 let's part as friends. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank it was you great so talking much. to you. I hope to see you soon. My guest today has been Chris Steyerwalt, author of a book every intelligent person should be reading right now. It's Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. Want to be spoon fed some links? We do that too. You can find a link to this amazing book in our notes, along with Chris's testimony before the January 6th committee. Thanks for tuning in to NSLT. You can find links in our notes to Chris's bio, as well as a link to where you can purchase his book, as well as a recent book that the committee has published, which of course is the National Security Law Compendium. I think you should take a look. It's worthwhile. You should have it on your desk. We don't take your time or your attention for granted. We ask that you do share this episode with a friend or someone who's not really a friend. Why don't you discuss these issues over coffee with somebody who's not the same party as you or doesn't look like you? Surely you can agree that having a strong, unified country provides a valuable buffer against foreign adversaries. Remember, folks, the annual National Security Law Conference is in November, and you can find a link to register in our notes and on our website. Remember to subscribe to NSLT and send us comments and feedback. You can do that on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Our producer is me, Lisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Bergham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.